I was going to start softly, but uh, while we were worshiping, um, it really struck me that if, and I know some of us do struggle with worship at times, but if, if you were struggling to worship, it's because you don't see him. You've either let your problems or the worries or whatever it is in your life cloud who he really is, because when you really see him, worship is not difficult. It's a natural response. So I want to pray this over us, Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And Lord, we pray this morning that it would be that way, that we would see you in a whole different light, that every struggle we have would be put in its perfect place, which is underneath you, not on top and not beside, and we worship you. And we thank you for this morning. Jesus' name. Okay, well, now I'll be nice. Um, I guess you saw the title, Friends. I thought we would start by singing the song, Friends are Friends Forever. <laughs> then I thought better of it because I didn't want to see everybody with their phones. <laughs> you know how that goes. But we do have a, a favorite... Um, little Winnie the Pooh thing in our house. It says, Pooh whispered Piglet. Yes, Piglet said Pooh. Oh, nothing said Piglet. I just wanted to be sure of you. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> that's as nice as it gets. But it's true because that's what real friendship looks like. It doesn't require anything except presence. And uh, it's a bond of mutual affection. It's not sexual. It's someone you look forward to seeing and who looks forward to seeing you. Someone you like so much it doesn't matter if you share the same interests. And it's basically a Greek word phileo, which describes affection, attachment, devotion, endearment, or familiarity. An intense sentiment between two or more people. And so I'm, what I'm going to do is start with friendship. Then we're going to talk about friendship with the world. And then we're going to bring conviction and then we're going to pray, and the rest of your day will go very well, I hope. But I'm glad the youth are in here with us, too, because I know when you're in school, this is a toughie. You fight every day to try to maintain friendships, uphold friendships. You're always at the, the latest whim of somebody. So one day you're great friends, the next day you hate each other, and that is not real friendship. It just isn't. And so this week, I learned a few new terms so I could be culturally relevant to the younger generation, which, believe it or not, I was one once. So I'm going to go through some terms. The first one is cap, which, when I was growing up, sounded like a hat. But I understand now it means you're lying. So if you have a text or something and somebody says, cap, that means you're lying. Just so you know. Don't go looking for your hat. Here's another good one. Ship. Which apparently means it's a relationship. You're either in a relationship or you were in a relationship. And probably by the size of the word and the way it sounds, that probably shows exactly how much work you've put into the relationship. <laughs> and why you're struggling with it so much. 
I think I understand why it didn't work, and I'm, and I'm old and get it. The other one is the word Bible, which I assume was a Bible, but what it really means is you're actually going to tell the truth this time, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, which makes me question everything else you've said up to that moment. Uh, swole. This is humiliating, I mean humbling. You know, swole is bodybuilding. It's being buff. I'll read you the definition. A paragon, a paragon of hypermasculinity manifesting in the physical and attitudinal embodiment of strength, occupying space with intimidating quantity, and developing rippling musculature through rigor, rigorous discipline exercise. So the next time Pastor Tim is up here and he says he's a six foot four, handsome, ruggedly handsome pile of muscle, you can just call him swole. <laughs> and if you can remember that and he ever does do it, we have to do that. <laughs> and then this last one is called streak. And my understanding is that streak is when you text back and forth or you communicate back and forth daily and the goal is to keep the streak going and you that's supposed to indicate some kind of friendship and I so I looked it up just because it's interesting and uh, there's a, a girl recently in one of the high schools who was devastated because her 157 day streak was broken and she said, I guess we're not friends anymore, even though they never were. But that's what it does to us. So here's some things that some teenagers said about streak. This is a girl named Kelly. She's 15 in San Diego. I have friends who treat it mostly like business. It's something they just have to put in work to maintain. They send snaps every morning and every night that just say streak. Who are they working for? Real relationships requires work for them. That's her idea of friendship. Uh, here's a guy named Sam. I send one message to all my streaks. That should make you feel special. I do a pic that says streaks, or I take a picture of something that represents how I'm feeling right now. Uh, a guy named Fallon. I have a friend who went to Australia, and before he left, he gave me all of his uh, login information so I could keep up all his streaks. I know a lot of people use their siblings' phones to keep their streaks up if their phone gets taken away. And for most of us, it's an attempt to stay connected and accepted by the world so that we don't feel less or unwanted. And because it's a cultural thing that we, we have to participate or our value goes down. And that's why I think it struck me this morning during worship, when you see him, your value never goes down. It stays up. And so if you find that your value is going up and down based on your last tweet or the last amount of likes, and I actually saw a, a minister, that I won't mention his name because you would know him, who listed his last year totals of likes, repost, tweets, and everything that was, yeah, I was surprised too. <laughs> I posted about it. No, I did not. I did not. You will never see a post from me. Because <laughs> every time I say something, I instantly regret it. 
And so in this attempt to stay connected, we compromise on everything that we believe in, everything that we were raised in. And true friendship begins in the heart. And friendship with God begins in the heart. And so what happens in your heart isn't on the internet. That is something that you're portraying out there. And the bond is made and trust is established in the heart. It's not in the tweet. And it's not in the post. And there's nothing wrong with those unless you're getting value from them. Or if your streaks get broken, I understand you need healing. Practically, it's with people that is usually doing something together. I mean, we build friendship if we have a work project. That's why one of the things the men's ministry always love. We do a work project, and we're instantly bonded with the other people who hated every minute of it. And forever, it's a story, and you talk about it. You do it at a retreat. You do it at a camp. Um, a difficult situation that you go through with a, a small group of people develops friendships that in a deeper heart-connected way that is much more real than a lot of the way we do relationships right now. And friendships are often about transition. And we've, at least I've always viewed friendship through the world's eyes. Acceptance, accomplishments, uh, value, success, wealth, success, wealth. What did you leave? Did you leave that up here? That little tongue thing. Uh, all things that draw us to the world. Okay, so when we're talking about friendship, we're talking about developing friends here, and it is all the things that draw us to the world. So my group of friends in high school was different than when I was in my 20s, and it was different in my 30s, because I jo we joined by accomplishments, goals, church, you know, everybody moves, and, and it's constantly changing. But when we're talking about friendship with God, we typically carry this same baggage into it. So I come in and I want to be a friend of God, but then all of a sudden I have the need for acceptance or the need for accomplishments or to be valued by him above what I should be. 1 John 2.16 says, I didn't have that one in my notes, sorry. But I do know where First John is. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And that's the stuff that we bring into our relationships with each other and with God. And then we wonder why our acceptance, we feel like our acceptance with Him is changing based on what we do, how we look, who we're with, and all those things. And when I can stand in the middle of the desert and be as close to God as anybody on the planet if I'm focused on Him. And I understand that it's got absolutely nothing to do with me. Most friendships require change of both parties. In this case, with God, it only requires change of one party, and it's not Him. It's you, because He's perfect. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about uh, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, I wanted to give you meat, but you're still carnal. You can't take meat. He says, and our brethren cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. 
I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're not able, for you are still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And carnal just means fleshly. You're still alive. And so you're, you don't function the way God intended you to function, and he can't teach you what he needs to teach you because you won't receive it. And that's what Paul is saying is, look, I'm ready to feed you some real stuff, but you're not able to take it. You'll choke on it. And God wants us to, to get rid of the worldliness in our relationship with him so that he can give us real food, so that you can stand with just him and not need others to feel secure or to feel wanted. And at least when you're truthful with God, he can begin the healing process on your heart and return you back to the fire you had originally with him. You remember when you first got saved? He was awesome. He pulled you right out of the pit, and you knew it. But then over time, the world creeps back in, and it's a very slow, seductive creeping. And if I said to you, who wants to see more of God? I love doing this part as a pastor. Raise your hands. Look at that power and control. If I said, who wants to see him demonstrate himself? Who wants to see more miracles? Everybody would. But you can't do it externally. If, I, if it won't happen, and I don't want this to sound bad, but it's true. It won't happen if all you do is declare it. I declare my bank account will have $5 million in it by tomorrow. It's not going to happen. Declaration has to come from revelation. When I have a revelation of what he's saying, I can declare it and have the full assurance that he's going to do it. It probably won't be the $5 million. I'm just guessing. But declaration has to come from revelation. And I see so many times that we want to divorce ourselves from a closeness of God because of the requirements of it and then begin to declare his promises that he wants to fulfill. But if you're not connected closely to him, you can't take it. It would be damaging to you. So he goes back to giving you milk. And since we've never tasted meat, we think milk is meat. We don't get to really see him do what it is he wants to do because we're not his friends. We're his acquaintances. And he wants us to get to the place of friendship. But we can't do it as long as we try to model our relationship with him after our relationships with others. Because they're all messed up. Every one of them. And the whole journey with God is about change. About you changing. And to the extent... To the extent you exclude God from your life, to that degree is the end of your relationship. Friends do not exclude from their life, from any area. That's why, that's why accountability can be so twisted, because I can give you access to one area of my life. That's not friendship. That's selective. Friends are transparent with each other, true friends. You know, I have friends that are completely safe 
I could go to them, I could say anything, I could rob a bank and go to them and they'd sit with me and, and wait for the police together. <laughs> but what I'm saying is I would be completely safe in their arms. I don't have to worry about who I am, I don't have to worry about what I've said, I don't have to worry about what I've done. The intimacy and closeness is there that brings the security that I've always longed for. That relationship is what God wants with us, where the security we get is from Him. I mean, let's think about it. He actually wants a relationship with you, which would make you question Him a little bit, and then He is perfect. So how bad can that be? It's just that the world system has still got a hold of your heart. It's still something that matters to you, acceptance from others. And I, I deal with it every week, honestly. I mean, there's times where you hear somebody say something, and you can feel the insecurity come. Like, oh, I hope I haven't offended them. I wonder why they said it that way. They didn't like my last post. I have people that will text me, and if I haven't texted back within 45 seconds, they think I'm mad. Most of the time, I forgot the phone in the car. So it's got nothing to do with that. It's got to be, to the extent that you exclude him, to that extent is the end of your relationship, and that's where you draw the line. And those who are friends with him invite him into the most intimate and personal parts of their heart and the most in intimate and personal parts of their lives, which he already knows, by the way. Somebody said the other day, I was listening to, I'll just say it was a preacher because that sounds better. But they said, uh, said you know, um, now I completely lost that thought, so God has saved you once again. That's a demonstration of his love and kindness towards you. <laughs> oh, I hate it when that happens. And they counted, those who invite him in counted a privilege to be known by him. It is special that he loves you and cares about you. It's not just some random act that he does because oh, I'm God, I've got to love everybody. It's an actual intentional want to be with you. And he knows all the stuff. And there is no freer, more relaxing, inviting place than in the presence of God with nothing to hide. And if you think you do, you're back in the world system or you're trying to protect something that really doesn't exist, just in your own mind. Henry Nouwen said this, he said, without silence and solitude with God, we remain unconvinced of our worth. Instead, we will live each day striving for affirmation, praise, and success. Rather than being set free to love others, we will be endlessly seeking to prove our own value. We will labor to water our gardens by drawing buckets from the world's empty wells. In the end, this leads not to love, but to a dry and weary existence. And that explains so many people and uh, so many counseling appointments who are getting their life from something other than him. And if you're doing that, you're not spending time with him, you do not know who you're missing. And you will continue to bring the world system into your relationship with him. And friendship with the world is to adopt their values. 
and standards. To desire what the world wants instead of choosing according to divine standards and divine truth. And there is no room for comparison. There's no room for comparison between divine truth and divine standards in the world's set of values. They are not the same. A worldly person will choose to satisfy himself and take action on his desire, and he can't do anything but. It's the spirit of the world. It's the spirit of Satan himself. It will always be manifested in selfishness. It begins with selfishness, so the end will also be selfish. You can't start with selfishness and end up with love. That's impossible. Your motive's really skewed. And when you get back, drawn back into, wor into the world, there's an element of unfaithfulness in us because no man can serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And can you honestly tell me, don't, don't yell it out, what in the world is drawing you back? in comparison to him. What is it that's got your attention that you're actually enticed by it over who he is? It's like the, the, the Israelites when they came out and they wanted to go back to Egypt because it was easier. They liked the manna or they didn't like manna, they wanted the meat. But you need to ask yourself this question, what is it that keeps drawing me away? Do I have the same zeal for him I did five to ten years ago? Or have I lessened? Has the world crept in and softened my stance? Has it softened my approach? Have I become more politically correct in how I approach the gospel and how I share the gospel and how I reach out to others in love? Am I embarrassed to go, and, and I'm preaching to myself here, am I embarrassed when I see someone hurting to pray out loud in front of people who don't know me on the street. Because if I am, I've let the world system creep back into my relationship with him. Because when I first got saved, I'd have prayed for anybody. I was telling everybody. I was always on, so to speak. But then over time, we become more and more conformed to the world. And I've been trying to decide, you know, what is it that's drawing me back? I mean, when I, got in, when I got saved, I had to repent from basketball games. That year, I think ESPN showed 210 live games, and I watched 207 of them. That was before DVR. And I remember repenting for it. You know what I do now at night? I watch basketball games. I'm tired. Because it's drawn me back. The things that had my attention 40 years ago have got my attention again all of a sudden. How did that happen? It happened because I let the world slowly creep back in and just erode what God had done. And he's so gracious and long-suffering that he waits and he waits and he waits. And then one day you wake up and you wonder, how in the world did I get here? And it's not always bad things. Anything that distracts you from him is a bad thing. The world would never say it. You won't go to jail for it. But it's a bad thing. It's taking life from you and depositing it somewhere else that it doesn't belong Freedom should never be something that makes you less than you were. 
freedom should be something that you enjoy to become everything he wants you to be. And it should, be, it should overarch all of my relationship with him. In James 4.4, 4, this is James writing to a church. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, which is pretty strong. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And these are church people he's talking to. So if you're a visitor, this isn't normal. This is rare. So please come back. Do you know what the word enmity or the word enmity means? It means deep-rooted hatred. It's not a soft word. I think we read through it. I, I can remember reading through it. Uh, you know, he put enmity between the woman and the, and the seed or the snake in Genesis. It's the same word, a hatred. Whenever you connect to the world, what you're telling God is, I hate you. I hate you in this area, and I'll take it. I don't need you. And I know that sounds strong, but it is strong. He doesn't share. He doesn't play well with others, especially when they're not his. Romans 8, 7 says the carnal mind is also enmity. If your thoughts haven't been renewed according to Romans 12, 2, this has hatred towards God because you don't think his thoughts, which means you're thinking the enemy's thoughts. And that's what you're going to act on. It says, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, God, nor can it be. It has to be renewed. But it's not just in your actions. When you, Romans 12, 2, that says, you know, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's just not in your actions. It's in your being as well. You prove the truth by how you live. It's not just what you do. So when you renew your mind, you begin to think of yourself the way God himself thinks of you, which is very highly, which minimizes the draw on somebody who doesn't think as highly of you, which is everybody else. Nobody thinks as highly as you as God does. So the more you begin to think like him, you see, then when you have the, the declaration, we sang um, about the promises of God, they're all yes and amen, and they are. But until you actually are with him in relationship where you begin to see and think like he sees and thinks, you never have the faith for that. It's undermined by everything you do. You can say it on Sunday morning that you love God and you're going to follow him and do whatever he says, and by 3 o'clock this afternoon you'll have found a reason not to. And then by Wednesday, you'll be frustrated that God's not doing what he said he would do. Why isn't he doing it? And he's saying, I'm trying. And you're very trying. <laughs> there are only two people in the Old Testament who were called friends of God, at least that I've found. One is Abraham, one is Moses. And they're called friends of God because God said they were called friends of God. That's the way he describes them, as his friends. And in Exodus, Moses talked with God face to face. We always use that when we're teaching about humility because it says Moses was the most humble man on the earth. And God spoke with him face to face and they dialogued. As a matter of fact, when Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, 
God heard it and called them out to a little meeting. And he wasn't there when they did that. Nobody was. God, as your friend, will always have your back. And it's a great story because Miriam and Aaron, I'm sure, are stuttering and stumbling all over themselves when he calls them out. And then God says, why weren't you afraid to talk against my servant Moses? Because he's my friend. And he will back up his friends. <laughs> and then the story in Genesis 18 of Abraham is even more bizarre because he's sitting there and two angels and God himself show up and he's not afraid which means he's probably seen them before. They've probably been around. And he's like, oh, great, we've got to go cook. I'm going to go tell Sarah to make some cakes, and he does, and I'm sure Sarah was blessed. Like, you did it again. You know, brought him home, says she made cakes. And then God says to the angel, should we hide from Abraham what we're about to do? And they decide to tell him. And you know the story, Abraham He's like, well, God, would you wipe away the righteous with the wicked? And what if there's 50, 40, 30? I don't know why he stopped at 10. You can read all kinds of commentaries, and everybody has a great idea. I just figure he figured there's got to be 10. Surely there's 10. And we know there wasn't. But God removed the few that were there, Lot's family. And in, it's in the dialogue with God that he reveals who he is to Abraham. And I know that Abraham was like, ah, don't be mad. I don't think he really thought he'd be mad or he wouldn't have said it. I think he was just thinking, eh, I'll push my luck here a little bit. And he did, and he kept talking. And the interesting thing is, after it was all said and done, you remember what happened to Lot's wife? She looked back. She still had an attachment to the world and turned to a pillar of salt. Now, fortunately, we don't live in that covenant, and I'm grateful but you cannot stay attached to the world. And his talk with God actually brought revelation of God's character to him. He began to understand God in a deeper way, the same way we do. The more interaction we have with him, the more time we spend with him, the more we understand him, the less the, the world has a draw. The more we want to be like him, the more we begin to look like him, the more our thoughts change, so we begin to believe what he says, the less we get tempted by the world. And it goes on and on and on. And we just keep becoming more and more like him because we're changed from glory to glory ever more into his likeness. And Jesus paid a huge price for all of us to have that same privilege of being a friend of God. Because Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. In other words, you're now a friend, I'm going to tell you everything the Father has told me. That's friendship. Open, honest dialogue about everything. So I want to ask you a few questions to help you determine your level of friendship with God. And I'd encourage you to either write them down or I think they're up here. You can take a picture. Because I really want you to think about them this week. The first one is, do you know him well enough that you don't need an explanation? It doesn't mean I don't ask or inquire. It means he doesn't have to answer me. And I'm okay with that. Because if, it's, if you have, are a true friend of his, you don't need an explanation. 
and he might answer. But if I have to have him tell me, that's a qualifier for my relationship with him. And that's not friendship. And will you, will you indict him on his character if he doesn't tell you? He never does anything the same way twice. And he doesn't do it that way for two reasons. One is, as soon as he does the same thing twice, we'll write a book on it and build a ministry and a big building and do all kinds of stuff. And the other is, if he does the same way twice, the enemy will also know what he's getting ready to do. So he draws us in as friends. He will tell us what he needs to tell us, and we've got to trust him when he doesn't tell us. Or that's not friendship. Why would I not trust the perfect person in the universe when I trust all of you knuckleheads? I mean, there's no comparison to God and you guys. I mean, you're awesome, but you're not him. And he's not going to do it the same way twice. Uh, this year, you know, Lamar Jackson, who's a little guy, all year they kept saying, well, you know, the NFL, they'll catch up to him. They'll catch up to him. And maybe they will. Who knows? But they're banking on the fact that he's not going to change. And if you don't change, they will catch up to you. So God always changes. But his changing is not an indictment of his character. He says, I am the Lord. I change not. So he always does things different. John the Baptist, when he answered, if you'll remember, Jesus tells John what's, John's disciples what's happening, and, and at the last thing he says is, blessed is he who's not offended by me, and could have had several meanings, but I think the, the main one is John just accepted it, because we never hear it again. A few chapters later, he loses his head, because he doesn't have to explain. He's a friend. All right, second question. Do I know him well enough that I don't need a demonstration? The last time you prayed, were you more excited about the answer or about him? If you demand a demonstration, I would say you were more excited about your answer and your cause. Because he doesn't have to do it. He has to be the most important thing, more important than anything else if you want to be friends with him. And then lastly, do I know him well enough that he doesn't need to justify himself? And justification is different than explanation. Explanation is an event. Justification is motivation. Why did you do that? Prove to me why you did that. Can you justify what just happened? And does silence make you uncomfortable? Because friends can sit in silence. I remember several years ago I was with Ed Lawson. We were sitting on a porch probably at his house. I don't know if Ed's here today or not, but uh, we've been friends a long, long time. And we sat there and realized that nobody had said a word for over 30 minutes and we were both tickled pink. We were just together. We had no agenda. We were just friends with some time to hang out. 
enjoy the sunshine, listen to the birds, whatever it was. I can't really remember all the details. I could make them up, but then I'd feel convicted about lying. <laughs> so these qualifiers, tell me, show me, or prove to me, are indicators of your level of trust for him. And if you need any of those, you don't know him yet. You know about him, but you don't really know him. Because like Job said, even if you kill me, I'm going to trust you. And you know what? If one day I become a martyr, that's okay. He's my friend. I'll spend the rest of eternity with him. And I'll wait for you guys. Unless you go before I become a martyr. In which case, you'll be waiting for me. But you see what I'm saying? I can't have an attachment to the world and expect to be his friend. I become useless to him as a servant. I'm not his friend. He can't trust me. I don't trust him, obviously. And our relationship begins to spiral down and deteriorate. And I think in Revelation, or I think it's in Revelation, where it says the love of many is going to grow cold. It's because they're not loving him. They're loving his stuff, they're loving his promises, they're loving their world, they're loving their whatever. But they're not loving him. Because if you love him, your eternity started the day you were born again. It doesn't matter whether you're doing it here or there. I mean, it matters, but you, you get the point. Have you ever had a close friend and noticed you were starting to act like him? the little quirky things that you thought were cool and you started doing them. That's what happens when you have true friends. You begin to imitate each other. Now, he's probably not going to imitate you. No offense. <laughs> but you will begin to imitate him. Which means you're going to truly learn to love. And if you can't, and hear me, if you don't love the perpetrator as much as you love the victim, that is not love. And we often confuse compassion and justice with love. And they're totally different. God loves both completely. Do we need compassion? Of course. Jesus was full of compassion. Do we need justice? Yes. That's why we have police and judges and jails and, and penalties for things that go wrong. But it's not my job. That's his job. He's the only one righteous enough to judge. And he will bring perfect justice one day to everything. If I don't know him that way, I will try to take it upon myself. And I was with a lady this week who uh, had been abused uh, many times when she was younger. And they had her in a program to confront perpetrators. And so they said, we're going to put... 15 guys in here, they're all guilty, and we're gonna, we'll be with you. We want you to sit down in front of them and let, tell them what you think. And she went in there and looked at him, and she said, I just started shaking. And I said, I can't. And they said, well, you, you have to. You're in this program for healing. She said, I can't. I forgive them and walked out. And she said, I flunked the program, but she said, then I knew that I was free. 
because I had love for the perpetrator as much as I did for me. And that's the thing. When you have that kind of love, you are connected to him in a way that he is your friend, which means you are unstoppable. Because even if they take your breath, you immediately are in his presence. Which means everything you read in here is not just doable, it's expected. As far as praying for the sick, praying for the lost, taking care of the, the widow and the orphan, doing everything Jesus would have done, we're well equipped to do it. The only time I ever hesitate is when I run into the world that's in me. Because that's where the decision comes. Now, am I going to totally rid myself of it? I hope so, but I doubt it. Because I don't, I just don't think I'm that good. He can get it all out of you, for sure. But if you're a friend with him, then love and justice will all happen. And justice is righteous and not vindictive. Because we all should be heartbroken for both the perpetrator and the victim. They both are in terrible need of a savior. Everyone needs a savior. Not just the ones you feel deserve it. <clears throat> and if you're friends with God, you will be lonely. And I know for a lot of you teenagers in school, whether it's middle school, high school, even college, you're constantly forced with the, the choice of compromise, to be liked, to be accepted. And I understand it's lonely, but once you connect with him, that loneliness will go away and you'll have a depth of relationship that you always read about but never thought was possible. And it will cover you in the loneliest, scariest, hard moments of your school life. It will. When I got saved, my friends lasted, I think the last one left after 10 days. They couldn't take it. The people I worked with were ruthless because I had been unsaved with them and now I was trying to be different and they didn't like it. And it was horrible. But the closer I got to him, the less it affected me. I mean, of course you're sad. Who wouldn't be sad? But it didn't get in. He protected me from that. And a few years later, I saw one, and uh, a guy I used to work with, and he said, you still got that religious stuff? I said, yeah, Roy, I do have it. He goes, you know, we gave you a really hard time, but we really respected you. And if you can maintain your friendship with God through the difficult times, when they have a serious need, you'll be the one they come to. And it will redeem everything that you fought through to get to where you now have a voice. And it's a protected voice by the Holy Spirit. And it's a righteous voice, which brings conviction in love and not in judgment and not vindictively and not I told you so and all the stuff that we get into. I'll just finish with this. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And you're not a friend of God if you withhold yourself for any reason. 
from people or from God. There are no secrets with friends. Drop the qualifiers, drop the requirements, drop the judgments. Fall back in love with the God who initially saved you and showed himself strong on your behalf and who knows some of the junk that we were all taken out of. You have such great value, unimaginable wealth as far as what God's concerned. And until you have friendship with him, the world will continually try and strip you of that value every way they can. And when you have friendship with God, you strip the world of its power over you and over others.